This is an AMI podcast. Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. On this episode, we're exploring the sunken shipwrecks on the St. Lawrence River. Lily's picked out some of her favorites she's going to tell us all about. And then I'm going to speak with Hubert Kretchen. He's the executive director of Freedom at Depth. It's a nonprofit organization that trains people with disabilities in scuba. And I've taken his course and I've dived with him on the St. Lawrence River. If you've ever thought about learning to scuba, now's the time. He teaches all his lessons over the winter, so by the time summer comes around, you're ready to go. Come on, Lewis, let's go find Miss Lily. Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Lily, how you doing? I'm doing good. Good, good. Hey, did you find some stuff on shipwrecks on the St. Lawrence River? Ah, quite unfortunately, there were many. <laughs> there were, there are many. When I looked, there was like over 150. Yeah, I don't know what people are shipwrecking on the St. Lawrence River, though. Yeah, too much drunk driving, I think. On the river. <laughs> Maybe. So what'd you find? Um, there are wrecks that date back to the war between the French and the English. Wow. Yeah, the French built the Iroquois in 1759, and the British captured the ship and renamed her the HMS. Anson, in 1763, the Anson struck a shoal off Susan Island and sank. Huh. Yeah, wooden sailing ships had a relatively short lifespan. The brigantine Fleur Marie was built in Lamoury, Quebec, in 1850. She had a length of 95 feet and beam of 20 feet. Big in, boat. Oh, big boat. In 1884, this aging ship was scuttled mid-channel in the St. Lawrence River. Wow. How long do boats usually last? Well, I guess that long. What else you got? Sidewheelers were popular passenger ferries in the 1800s. Wow. The Sir Robert Peel was a sidewheel passenger steamer built at Brockville, Ontario in yeah. 1837. Yeah. While tied up to the dock in... 1838, a raiding party dressed up as native warriors captured her, robbed the passengers, and set the ship on fire. Ouch. Yep. The wooden padwheeler Rothsey was built at St. John, New Brunswick. She was a passenger steamer with a length of 193 feet. That's huge. It Big, big steamer. Yeah. In September of 1889, the Rothsey collided with the Tug Myra, and she sank, killing two crew members. Wow. Even though ships that pass through the St. Lawrence River now must use specially trained pilots, that wasn't always the case. And even still, pilots could make mistakes. Yeah, they can. Yeah. The three-masted schooner, A.E. Vickery, was built at Three Mile Bay, New York, in 1861. Yeah. An incompetent river pilot ran the 136-foot schooner onto a shoal when entering the American Narrows. It then slipped off the shoal and sank soon afterwards. I'd like to dive on that one, too. But I'm going to put that one on my bucket list. Oh, I want to go diving on shipwrecks. Jeez. Do you? Well, sure. Okay. But not. I don't want to be a diver. Well, you can't, you can't dive without being a diver. Yeah, sure you can. It's called being reckless. Uh, the Robert Gaskin was a 132-foot, three-masted wooden bark. She was built in Kingston, Ontario in 1863. Mm-hmm. In 1889, while involved in salvaging a train ferry, a salvage pontoon broke loose and punched a hole right through her hull. Wow. Yeah, she then sank right on top of the boat she was involved in salvaging. <laughs> wow, that's bad luck. Oh, wow. It's karma. People dive on that one all the time. The 90-foot wooden schooner Maggie L. was one of the last commercial sailing ships on St. Lawrence River. 
Steamers would eventually replace sailing ships. The wooden steamer, Arizona, was built in Cleveland in 1868. She had a length of 201 feet and a beam of 32 feet. In December 1922, the Arizona caught fire at Cape Vincent. She was towed upriver for one mile and then scuttled. They just sank her right there in the river. Some of the ships that sunk were just unlucky. The steamer Oconto was on her first trip carrying a cargo of silks, cotton, boots, and 15 passengers. Fancy. She, <laughs> she struck Granite Shoal in July of 1886. There was an unsuccessful salvage attempt, and the Oconto eventually slid down the steep side of the channel, where she can be found to this day. Well, I know I'm going to get your birthday present next summer. What? <laughs> All those fancy silks and things? Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> well, no, now here's one you want to avoid, okay? Yeah. The America. Uh. The steel drill barge America was used to dynamite shoals along the St. Lawrence River. Uh-huh. An explosion on board the America caused her to sink on June 20th, 1932. Wow. The barge lies upside down near the shipping channel. Use caution when driving. Use caution? <laughs> Use caution when driving. Yep. <laughs> so full of dynamite. Apparently. Uh, just 50 years ago, around the time of the 1975 sinking of Edmund Fitzgerald on Lake Superior, the 343-foot mm. freighter East Cliff Hall struck a concrete buoy at Chrysler Shoal. Wow, Chrysler Shoal. Yeah, that's right near Upper Canada Village. She was built in Montreal in 1954, and when she sank in 1970, she was carrying a load of... Of pig iron, just like the Edmund Fitzgerald. Wow. Nine lives were lost. Oh. Yeah. A more recent shipwreck is the Roya Jodry, built in 1965 for the Algoma fleet. The Jodry was a fairly new 623-foot Canadian self-unloader. While traveling upbound on the St. Lawrence River, the Jodry stuck a navigational buoy and quickly began taking on water. She was run aground before she could sink and block the shipping channel. That's what they do. If it's starting to sink, they just run it up onto the beach so it yeah. doesn't sink. Like that thing in the sewers. Well, that was kind of a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> in 2015, a tugboat capsized and sank on the St. Lawrence River near Cornwall. Oh, I remember that. The tug was plowed under by a barge in strong currents. A second tug sent to rescue the crew of the first tug also <laughs> capsized and sank in the same area just a few hours later. All crew members of the tugs were able to escape safely. The sinking of the two tugs took place just days after two other incidents on the St. Lawrence. The first was when 30 passengers were injured when their cruise ship, the St. Laurent, struck a wall in the Eisenhower Lock, which was followed up not long afterwards when the 3,000-ton bulk carrier, MV Tundra, ran hard aground near Lancaster, Ontario. The freighter remained grounded for almost a week before it could be refloated. Wasn't a good week for shipping on the St. Lawrence. Those poor two tugboats. <laughs> Lily, thanks so much for bringing that all to our attention. You know, Hubie Cretchen, he is the... Hubie. Uh, Hubie, yeah. He's the executive director of Freedom at Depth. He teaches people with disabilities to scuba. And uh, I've dived with him on the uh, St. Lawrence River. Uh, it's his favorite place to go. So uh, let's, let's hear what Hubie has to say. Time for the bucket list. We're 
We're fortunate to have Hubert Kretchen. He is the executive director at Freedom at Depth Canada. It's all about making scuba accessible to everybody, regardless of their abilities. Welcome to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Hubie, good to chat with you again, sir. Well, nice to be with you. Why don't you talk to us about how you started this whole organization, where you've been and where it's going and uh, some of the highlights. Is when I started teaching people with disabilities, I was only teaching people with physical disabilities. And when I became an instructor trainer where I teach other scuba instructors how to work with people with disabilities, it was a little bit awkward for me to teach them how to teach blind people because I had no experience. And I told the founder of the Handicapped Scuba Association, which is an old guy that I always call Master Yoda because he started diving for people with disabilities, I said, you know, I don't really get it. Why should we teach people that are blind how to scuba dive? Scuba diving is such a visual sport. And in his infinite wisdom, he said, well, why don't you just go and teach somebody? So I taught a guy called Mark Domolsky. And Mark Domolsky is a phenomenal scuba diver. He's he's, he's impressive. He's one of the best scuba divers I've ever trained. And I finally understood what he got out of it. Uh, Mark is probably the person who knows the Robert Gaskin better than anybody else. The Robert Gaskin is a beautiful shipwreck. It looks like something out of Pirates of the Caribbean. It's it's an old wooden uh, boat. And Mark explores it tactically. And he knows that thing so well. We don't do the same activities with blind people than we do with able-bodied people or people with physical disabilities. Uh, I've taken blind people scuba diving down south, but it's pretty limited what we can do in the ocean. We can feel the ripples in the sand, and there's a few things that we can feel, but I'm not going to put a blind person's hand on a piece of coral so they know what the coral feels like. I'll end up killing the coral. And Mm. if it's fire coral, I'll end up injuring the the person with disability. Mm. But to me, the best type of diving when you can't see is, is exploring uh, things with your hands and there's nothing better to explore than wooden shipwrecks. And in the St. Lawrence river, we have, uh, we're in the top three spots in the world for wreck diving because the water's cold, right? And, and, uh, the wrecks, they, they stay preserved. Hubie, talk to me about the, the process involved with, with learning how to do scuba. Like you, you did it with me and I really enjoyed our course together. It was many hours we spent together in your indoor pool, but they were very fruitful. And, and I really felt at the end of the process that I learned how to do scuba, you know, like every bit of it, I was very confident and, and that takes time and commitment and you take it really seriously, but walk us through sort of this training regime that you've developed. Well, well diving is a very cerebral sport, right? That's why it's so good for people with disabilities. If you give me a good brain and a body that has some problem, I can do a really good diver with it. What we do, if somebody's interested in learning how to dive, we do an introduction. And the introduction is about four hours where we do a little bit of theory and then we go in the pool and we try scuba diving. If that person decides they want to become a diver, then we go through the program. Um, a diving program has three components. There's confined water, which is work in the pool. There's uh, open water, which is work in the river. And there's a uh, theory, which is work in the classroom. So during the winter, we do the theory and the pool. We don't want to do theory in the pool in the summer. If somebody calls me and they want to learn how to dive in May, I'm going to say come back in October because we only have four months in Canada when we can dive in open water. And in the summer, we're getting our people to dive. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, um, our people who are certified through us have lots of opportunities to dive. We make it really easy for them to dive. So in the wintertime, when you're doing your, your, your class and your theory, 
that's a minimum of four class lessons and four pool lessons. If it takes, you know, uh, four lessons, it takes four lessons. If it takes 10 lessons, it takes 10 lessons. And the other thing is we teach people one-on-one. If I teach them one-on-one really well and I make really good divers with them, then they're going to have a long diving career where they're diving with all sorts of people. And then in the summertime, you come for a weekend and we do five dives. And by the end of that, you're a certified diver. Hubie, there was one thing that I learned in, in this experience that I, it never crossed my mind until it actually happened. And that is controlling you know, the rate of descent or ascent. And that's such a visual thing, isn't it? So this is something you had to do with me really hand in hand, because, you know, like you pointed out to me, the last thing you want to do is drop like a rock or, or fly up like a, a, a helium balloon. You're going to have real sorts of problems with your ears if you do that. So that controlled ascent or descent is super important. Talk, talk to us about how you manage that. Well, well first of all, the, the dangers of going down too fast are that you're going to injure your ears. The dangers of going up too fast are much, much more dangerous. And what we normally do is we have them hold on to us as we're going down. So I gauge the rate of descent Mm -hmm. and we teach them how to control their buoyancy with uh, their BCD and their breathing. And the BCD Uh, is the uh, buoyancy control device. You know, Archimedes law, Archimedes um, discovered that when you displace more water, you float more. Mm -hmm. So when you take a bigger breath, your lungs are bigger, you displace more water, you you feel like you're going to go up when you make your lungs very small, you feel like you're going to go down. When you make your BCD very large by having lots of air in it, you want to go up. When you make it very small, you want to go down. So a a blind person can control that they're holding on to an instructor. And if Mm -hmm. they feel that there's pressure upwards or downwards on the instructor's uh, wrist, they can, um, uh, you know, they can determine relative to the instructors if they're sinking or floating and then make themselves neutral relative to the instructor and then just follow the instructor as he goes down. And when they're more experienced, like a, a really good uh, diver, like Mark Domulski, uh, I'll put the uh, descent line in his hand and I, I won't guide him down. He's, he's going to go down the descent line and He's got enough experience to know what a good rate of descent is by pulling himself on, on the line. And even though he's blind, he's got cues to how deep he is. If he starts going too deep too quickly, he's going to feel it in his ears. Mm-hmm. So he's going to know he has to slow down. His BCD is going to compress because of the pressure. He's going to start feeling that he's hanging on the rope because he's negatively buoyant. Mm-hmm. So he's going to realize that he's been going down further than he, than he wanted to. So there's all sorts of cues uh, that a person can use. And, you know, we've been talking about people who are blind, but we've also worked with people who are sight impaired and, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a different world. Some sight impaired divers that I've had, I love to go to the Bahamas and I don't like to go to really beautiful exotic places like Bonaire because Bonaire is all about the little critters, the little life. And the Bahamas is all about the sharks and Mm. the rays and the big groupers and people who have limited sight can usually really enjoy these things. This is a man who has a 400 gallon saltwater aquarium in the uh, Freedom at Depth Center there. It's you you are committed to this in every regard. It's absolutely amazing, Hubie, the work you've done over the years and the amount of people you've introduced to the sport and, and the amount of people who love that freedom of of being uh, neutrally buoyant. And and I think that's the that's the big attraction for a lot of people, isn't it? Is that neutral buoyancy where you take away the effects of gravity 
where you've adjusted the uh, the air level in your buoyancy control device, and and you're just suspended there in the water column. You're not going up, you're not going down, and you just go forward. And it, it, you know, with a little kick of your foot, you move forward, and it's a beautiful feeling of weightlessness, uh, almost like being an astronaut. I'm sure. I think a lot of people have misunderstandings about pressurization at the surface we're yeah. under one atmosphere of pressure mm -hmm. 33 feet of water weighs the same as uh one atmosphere of air so by the time you're at 33 feet you're at two atmospheres if you mm -hmm. go to 66 feet you add one more atmosphere so you're at three atmospheres um, but the, the the key here is uh if we adjust the pressure in our air spaces we're not going to feel the pressure because the parts of our body that don't have air in them are uh, mostly water and water is not compressible. Mm -hmm. So what's what's really key when you go underwater is to make sure that all of your air spaces are at the same pressure as the water around you. We got down 90 feet and I didn't feel that it was deep. I mean, I think that that's the advantage when you're blind is it doesn't really matter how far down you are because you don't really look up. Uh, you don't feel it if your air spaces are adjusted disability doesn't have a bearing on how deep you can go education and experience has we're concerned about the safety of people who are diving with people with disabilities some of our divers who, who uh, because of the standards they're able to accomplish we determine uh, that they're not capable of um, doing rescues we we want them to dive with two buddies so if i was diving with you lawrence and i had a heart attack and and and, and i was waving at you that i was in trouble the odds that you could help me would be very low because oh, yeah. you couldn't see that I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. And even if I tactfully indicated to you that I was in trouble and you're a good diver, you get me to the surface, you'd have a hard time swimming me to shore because you wouldn't know where shore is. Mm -hmm. So your certification requires you to have two dive buddies. The second dive buddy is not there for you. He's there for me. If mm -hmm. something happens, everybody in the team must have somebody to provide assistance. That's an important lesson, isn't it? Because I think, you know, a lot of blind people do stuff with a sighted friend and it never crosses their mind. I mean, they're, they're, their sighted friend is always there to, you know, make sure that blind person doesn't get into trouble and, and fall off something or step somewhere where they shouldn't be stepping. You don't really think about what happens if something happens to the sighted buddy. And I've, I've been out on boats before where, you know, my sighted fishing friend has fallen overboard. But I thought about it afterwards, you know, what happens if they didn't get back? And what happens if they had hit their head and just sank? As soon as they're underwater, you can't hear them anymore. There's not a lot of sound. And even if you can hear them, you have no idea which way the sound's coming from. Sound travels four times faster in water than in air. Cousteau's first big movie was The Silent World. Mm. Well, that's not true. There's a lot of sound underwater. There really Actually, is. you hear sound very, very well underwater. And it travels uh, very clearly and, and very fast. But because it travels fast, it's very, very difficult to tell direction of sound underwater. The way if I make a, a clicking sound, uh, the way I know that that clicking sound was on my right is because the sound hits my right ear before it hits my left ear and my brain's able to computate uh, location. But if the sound was coming four times quicker, uh, my brain can't, can't deal with that. I'm not a dolphin. I can't process sound coming at me this fast. It all sounds like it comes from the middle of your head. I mean, it's, you hear these things perfectly clear, but there's no stereo involved. It's pure mono sound. It's, 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 it's happening in the center of your head. 
And uh, so finding your way through sound is, is not an option. The, the thing with the sound underwater is that uh, we can use it to communicate. I can do some sounds to get your attention. Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left, 122 meters. Let's talk about some of the um, different strategies and technologies that are specific to blind people. The one is hand-to-hand communication. And talk to me a little bit about how that works. I try to keep it very simple. Uh, there are some uh, people who do what I do around the world who like to teach uh, a lot of different communication signs to their um, blind divers. But the problem is if I send you to the Caribbean and you meet a dive master and you go with him and you try to teach him 40 different signs, you're gonna scare the hell out of the guy and he's not gonna wanna dive with you. So I teach everything you need to know to dive safely and nothing else. It's tactile communication. Your primary dive buddy to the blind person speaks tactily, but uh, the blind diver speaks normally. You can all visualize the okay sign. An okay that I would give you, I would squeeze your upper arm, but you wouldn't bother doing that because I recognize a regular okay. So you would just use a regular okay. Mm-hmm. The only thing is you're using normal communications, but you could tell me that you have a problem. And if you don't have my attention, I'm not going to recognize your sign. So you still have to get my attention. You still have to give me a shake before you give me a regular hand signal. Mm-hmm. What are some of the equipment we're using? Uh, I, I know some people have developed and purchased, you know, their own uh, uh, tactile air regulators and, and dive clocks and things like that. So, but talk to me about some of these things you've, you've witnessed over the years. Sadly enough, uh, uh, audio dive computers were a thing in the 90s, uh, but they're not anymore and we can't find any used ones. We have tactile signals for telling a diver how much air he has, how much time he's been underwater how much time he's got left on the dive and how much pressure he has in his cylinder. Some divers use a tactile pressure gauge, which was designed for commercial scuba divers uh, who sometimes dive in things like molasses. I know of a diver who dove in molasses. So where there's no visibility at all, they have tactile pressure gauges. So um, those things are difficult to find. Um, I, I still have a few here and I've, I've got a couple of my divers who are diving with it. But the diver who has a tactile pressure gauge needs a regular pressure gauge because when we dive, we always have to be cognizant of how much air everybody in the group has. And a tactile pressure gauge is a little bit difficult to use if you're not used to it. And we had a situation in the past where a, um, a blind diver was low on air and uh, did not have a regular pressure gauge. And when I, when I saw it, I wasn't sure if he was low or out of air. So I treated it as an out of air situation. And after that, I decided that it would be a good thing that I just have a gauge for myself as well. The, the time as well, is there a way of checking the time? and Tactily. All tactile, yeah. And that's, you, you'd spell that out in the hand with the fingers and the thumbs by pinching the fingertips and the thumbs and, the, and that gives us an idea of how much air we have, how much time we have left. Yes. There's something called the capillary depth gauge. What we basically do is we take a syringe and we epoxy the tip and uh, we make sure that the plunger uh, is about uh, one quarter in already. And what's going to happen if you remember at the surface, you're at one atmosphere of pressure. So at 33 feet, where you're at two atmospheres of pressure, the plunger will have gone in halfway. So those things are not very precise. I have some divers who dive with them. Uh, They're not going to be able to tell you that they're at 66 feet for sure, 
um, they'll be able to tell you that I'm somewhere close to 60 feet. All of that to say, I mean, equipment aside, the equipment is very good. The equipment that you use is top quality. You're in good hands when you dive with your team and you have great uh, volunteers that are very comfortable at doing this. They've got tons of experience and, and people working with you and yourself included. It takes a lot of that stress out of the dive for me and others with disabilities, knowing that we're in really good hands and we're left just to there to enjoy the experience and get as much out of it as, as possible. And I, I think that that in itself is in a value that you just can't measure. Hubie, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time with us today. And, uh, why don't you tell, uh, uh, the listeners where they can get a hold of you and uh, organize their own instruction program. Google freedom at depth Canada. You can send me an email. It's H like hotel C like Charlie at F like Foxtrot, A like alpha D like Delta C like Charlie.ca. Hey buddy. Thanks so much, man. I'm looking forward to get back in the water with you. Keep up the great work, sir. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I first became interested in scuba when I met some blind divers in Sweden. I was living there for a year as a guest lecturer and researcher. This was 30 years ago. One of them had a very lucrative contract involving swimming up a kilometer of pipe. It was an intake pipe for a nuclear power plant. In one hand, he would hold a video camera. In the other hand, a light. He would swim all the way up, turn around and swim all the way back. Another blind diver I met was involved in the salvaging of a 400-year-old Viking ship. It sank in the archipelago near Stockholm, Sweden. They first sent down sighted divers with these large vacuums to suck the silt out of the hull of this Viking ship. But as soon as they turned the vacuums on, the silt got stirred up and the sighted divers couldn't see their hands in front of their faces. The solution was hire blind divers. They didn't need lights. They didn't need clear water. They just needed a rope to guide themselves down to the wreck. And from there, they just went inside the hall with their vacuum cleaner tubes and sucked out every bit of silk. The Vasa was eventually lifted up and she rests now in a museum in Stockholm. Personally, my favorite thing to do is to swim near the bottom using my hands to feel my way along. I feel like a baby crawling along, discovering the world for the first time. It's a whole underwater world that's so different from our own. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.